You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 24. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. Again, as we have in each class, a prayer from John Calvin. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, since we have already entered in hope upon the threshold of our eternal inheritance, and know that there is a mansion for us in heaven, since Christ our head and the firstfruits of our salvation has been received there. Grant that we may proceed more and more in the way of your holy calling until at length we reach the goal, and so enjoy the eternal glory of which you have given us a taste in this world. By the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, Calvin ends the Institutes, you know, with a chapter on civil government. You might think that an appropriate place to end would have been his chapter on eschatology, which is the end of Book 3, but Calvin goes on to Book 4 with his treatment of the church, the sacraments, and then finally civil government. I think this is another indication of the practicality of Calvin's uh, treatment. He encourages us to look forward to heaven in the last chapter of book three as well as in chapter nine, meditation on the future life. But as long as we live in this world, till we go to heaven, we have responsibilities and duties uh, here. And so it seems to me it's not inappropriate for Calvin to end his great uh, work on Christian theology with a powerful chapter on civil government. Uh, not everybody has uh, seen it that way. Bondell, in his uh, survey of Calvin's theology, rearranges um, Calvin's treatment in Book 4 so that Bondell deals with civil government earlier and then he's able to end on the, on the high note of the Lord's Supper rather than plunging back down into the nitty-gritty life of um, living in this world. But I rather like Calvin's way of doing it. Gets us back into the world and um, in the church, but in the world too, because Christians are citizens of both realms. Civil government is a, a topic of significant interest to Calvin. It was also to Zwingli, less so to Luther. But uh, Calvin has... Uh, great uh, concern about uh, this topic and uh, deals with it um, in the Institutes, also in Book 3, Chapter 19, where he is um, talking about Christian liberty, he wants to make sure that that is not to be understood as liberty from the state or liberty from government, as uh, some radicals were interpreting that idea as it came from Luther. And then Calvin returns uh, to, the, to the idea and topic of civil government 
in chapter 20 of book 4. So in your thinking, you need to link 319 and 420 because um, 420 is, in a real sense, a continuation of 319. We haven't uh, done too much with the little superscriptions, the ABCs uh, that appear in the paragraphs of the Institutes, but uh, perhaps from uh, reading the introductory material, we know that uh, you know that is the way the editor tries to indicate uh, the source of each of these paragraphs or sometimes sentences beginning in 1536 for A, 1539 for B, and on up to 1559. It's interesting to, um, to look at those occasionally. And as we do that in Chapter 20, or Civil Government, we'll see that almost all of this comes from 1536. Calvin doesn't really rewrite. He brings together what he has written and expands and develops, as we have already seen, and does add uh, some material to what he has done earlier. But so much of his treatment of civil government is from 1536 with some additions in 1539 and a few additions uh, from the later uh, period. 1536, the date 1536 was also the date of the Munster episode, the Anabaptist um, experience at Munster when the Anabaptists uh, took over that city in Westphalia and um, created a kind of uh, Old Testament theocracy there, finally defeated by an army of Roman Catholics and Protestants. And uh, Munster then becomes a kind of a symbol of radical Reformation attitudes which caused a lot of fear and concern that uh, whenever the Protestant movement would spread, it would cause the overthrow of civil governments. So I think that is one of the reasons Calvin is concerned in 1536 to think about civil government from Christian point of view and from a Protestant uh, point of view. Also, by 1536, Machiavelli's The Prince had been published with its um, undue reverence for kings, and uh, that book would have been in Calvin's mind, uh, undoubtedly, as uh, Calvin wrote this chapter. In fact, Calvin in 421 talks about the flatterers of princes immoderately praising their power. These princes who do not hesitate to set themselves against the rule of God himself. So there is the critique of um, the immoderate praise of princes, as would have occurred, as did occur, in Machiavelli's uh, The Prince, written first in Italian and then later translated 
into Latin. So with all of that in the background, Calvin is, as early as 1536, concerned about uh, these matters. But Calvin also treats um, civil government in his commentaries, and as you would expect, the two places where uh, this appears uh, most um, thoroughly is in his commentary on Daniel and in his commentary on the book of Romans. John T. McNeil, the editor of our 1559 edition of the Institutes, has uh, also edited a little book called On God and Political Duty, in which he brings together these uh, sources of uh, Calvin's um, treatment of civil government, Institutes, two chapters in the Institutes, and passages from Daniel and Romans, and includes uh, with that a very helpful introduction to Calvin and his views of civil government. We could uh, divide this chapter this way. First three sections, one, two, three of chapter 20, have to do with the function and responsibility of civil government. Four, section 4 through section 13, the work uh, of the magistrate. And then 14 through 16, the character of the civil law. And finally, 17 through 32, the response of the governed people. So we'll work uh, through those uh, different uh, ideas as uh, we seek to understand what Calvin is meaning to set forth uh, on this topic. Uh, Calvin often here and back in 319 and in the commentaries will uh, talk about a twofold government. Christians are under a twofold government. Uh, one, of course, is the government of the church, which is already dealt with extensively in Book 4. That uh, government, Calvin says, pertains to eternal life, to spiritual life, and that leads to uh, eternal life. But uh, Christians are also under a second government, and that is the civil government, or the government of the state, which, according to Calvin, pertains only to the establishment of civil justice and outward morality, not to spiritual things, not to doctrine, not to sacraments, but uh, to outward uh, community living, civil justice, and outward morality. But uh, for Calvin, this is not um, an inconsequential thing. Civil government is, is God's uh, instrument, and it's God's gift uh, to us. Calvin has a very positive view of government. It's not merely a negative view just to kind of keep law and order, but um, government, in Calvin's view, is a positive uh, blessing. In fact, he says in 422, it's another help, another help on our pilgrimage. So not only 
do we have um, the external means applied to the church and the sacraments, but also to the civil government. It's not something we merely tolerate. It's something we thank God for because it um, is a help to us as Christians, not only as citizens, uh, but also as Christians. Remember that um, Book 4 deals with the external means. Book 3 is the Christian believer, all the way from faith to heaven. But uh, the Christian believer, Calvin insists, in Book 4 cannot be separated from the church. Our life is a life that uh, is both um, internal and external. And uh, the church uh, cannot be detached from the larger life of humanity as a whole. Church is part of life on this earth. And uh, we can't um, take the believer and take him or her out of the church and just have a kind of spiritual person without uh, the community experience of the church, nor can we take the church out of the world and have it um, somehow isolated and standing all by itself. I have um, written a number of uh, local church histories, as you know. One of the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, and then just recently the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, be 250 years old in 2005, and um, working now on the First Presbyterian Church of Augusta, Georgia, which will be 200 years old in 2004. And every time I work on one of these church histories, I'm impressed with this because I really can't write the history of the church just in a vacuum. It involves the history of the city, history of the state, history of the people that surround it, the history of the culture of that place. And uh, Calvin, I think, makes this clear uh, in um, his treatment of civil government. Churches in the state, churches in the world, one sense not of the world, but in another sense very much in the world. So for Calvin, both uh, church and state are God's means of establishing his order in this world and restraining evil and blessing those who do good. Uh, this means, for Calvin, quite uh, in contrast to some people in the 16th century, mainly the Anabaptists and some of the radicals, it means for Calvin that civil authority or leadership in the state uh, is a calling. Calvin puts it this way in 424, not only holy and lawful before God, that is, to be a magistrate, to be an officer of the state, is a calling which is holy and lawful before God, but also, and notice his words here, the most sacred and by far the most honorable of all callings in the whole life of mortal men. And uh, if I just read that to you without putting it in context here and ask you what Calvin was talking about, 
Now you'd probably say he's talking about the pastor, the minister. But um, almost shockingly, he's talking about um, civil leaders. He calls them God's uh, vice regents, 424. And he calls them vicars of God, deputies of God, 426. That is book 4, chapter 20, section 6. And vice regents in book 4, chapter 20, section so Calvin uses some almost extravagant language here to talk about uh, the, the role of um, civil uh, leaders. What are the reasons for civil government? Uh, why uh, do we have uh, such? Why does God give us civil government? And Calvin begins uh, with the fact of of sin. Uh, That's not the primary thought in Calvin, but it's certainly a part of uh, Calvin's uh, understanding of the reason for civil government. Uh, That is, because of sin, there needs to be constraint, there needs to be order, there needs to be government. And uh, Calvin uh, begins uh, with that, or at least uh, includes that in his um, reasons for civil government. It's almost the primary thought in Luther. Government is there because of sinfulness. But I don't think it's the primary thought in Calvin. Government is there because of the providence of God. And certainly uh, sinfulness uh, enters uh, in. In fact, as we come to discuss in a moment the types of government, uh, Calvin prefers a kind of government in which authority is uh, spread out so it's not concentrated in one person or even a few people because of sinfulness, because of human sin. One person who has all the power can abuse that power so easily. So the fact of sin is one reason, but uh, a stronger reason in Calvin's view, I think, is God's uh, goodness, God's providence. He's given us uh, government, which is a positive good for 20 section 2, not a polluted thing with which Christians will have nothing to do. And uh, that's, of course, a criticism of the Anabaptists, many of whom were saying civil government is evil and uh, we just won't have anything to do with it. But uh, Calvin says civil government is a gift of God and a positive good, and uh, Christians should be involved in it. And... Calvin says the reason for civil government, a third reason, is for the preservation and blessing of humanity. So it's to to control sin, to keep sin from being concentrated, power, sinful power, from being concentrated in a few people who can abuse it. And um, also, uh, because of God's goodness, 
And part of God's goodness is that he uses civil government to uh, preserve and bless humanity because uh, without it, uh, there is um, anarchy and destruction and all kinds of evil. And I think we've seen that in recent days just after the war in Iraq when there was almost no government there. There's beginning to be a government there again. But um, almost at first it looked like it was worse to have no government than to have an evil government, which at least imposed a certain amount of law and order with a lot of uh, injustice. But um, you can see the evils that come when there is no government. Julia? Going back just a moment on civil authority calling, a specific example for the classes to remember our representative, Pat Aiken, mm-hmm. who is an elder in his church and an MDiv graduate of Covenant Seminary. Yes. Yes, Julian is mentioning uh, Todd Aiken, one of our graduates, who is the U.S. congressman for our district here in his second term and a member of one of the PCA churches, Twin Oaks, and our senator, one of our senators too, Jim Tallett. Both of these uh, men, I think, uh, see uh, their role in government as very much a calling that... uh, that God has uh, issued to them. In fact, I've heard Todd talk about this at some length, uh, how uh, God has called him uh, into this kind of service. So Calvin would agree. These are honorable offices, and the people that uh, fill them are really deputies of God or vicars of God. So Calvin would not be anti-government, just looking at government as a kind of necessary evil. Uh, It is uh, for him... A positive good. What does uh, government do? What is the function of civil government? And uh, the function is uh, twofold. And Calvin relates it to the Decalogue, to the uh, Ten Commandments. Looking first at the second table of the law which relates to the commandments that speak of our life in society. Thou shalt not steal, kill, commit adultery, and so on. Calvin says civil government is there to enforce and encourage obedience to these precepts of God. It adjusts our life to society, is one way he puts it. It forms our social behavior to civil righteousness. It reconciles us with one another. It promotes general peace and tranquility that humanity be maintained among men. So civil government has to do with all these social relations, these um, areas of... (coughs) connection between person and person to regulate our life, to promote peace and tranquility uh, on this earth. But uh, Calvin doesn't uh, stop there, and here he uh, goes on to apply the role of civil government to the first table of the law as well. And uh, this is where uh, we live in a quite different world from 16th century 
but we need to understand uh, Calvin's uh, thinking on it and then uh, the reason we don't uh, follow uh, Calvin in this. Calvin believed that the civil government, uh, just as just as it had the function of preventing people from stealing from one another, also had the function of promoting the true religion, by which he meant the Christian religion and the Protestant uh, religion. Calvin says that um, civil government protects the outward worship of God. By that he meant it doesn't regulate, at least according to Calvin's desire, the inner workings of the church. The civil government cannot dictate doctrine or control worship or practice church discipline. Although the last of those uh, points, uh, Calvin had to fight long and hard to win for the church the sole right to exercise church discipline. One of the reasons he had to leave Geneva in 1538 was because he could not um, win that point and Calvin could not stay in Geneva, he felt, when church discipline was not in the hands of the church but in the hands of the state. And even when he came back, he was not able for another decade uh, to actually free the church from state interference in the matter of church discipline. But uh, Calvin was not trying to separate church and state. He felt that the church had the right to regulate its own affairs, but that the state should work with the church in promoting the church, in preventing opposition from forming to the church, and in defending piety uh, and the church that, Calvin says, a public manifestation of religion may exist among Christians. This meant, of course, in Geneva, and Calvin agreed with this, and was true almost everywhere else in the 16th century, except uh, some of the Anabaptists had different views. It would not be until much, much later, places like uh, Rhode Island, in the American colonies that a true separation of church and state uh, would take place. With Calvin's view of the role of the state to enforce, defend, promote both tables of the law, this meant that uh, heresy uh, was a civil crime punishable by the state. And the famous example of that is Servetus. Servetus was not uh, put to death uh, by the church in Geneva, but by the state. But Calvin agreed, and actually Calvin wrote the other reformers, Melanchthon and others, for advice, and all of the reformers agreed that heresy was a civil crime. Calvin did try to have the sentence uh, mitigated from burning to beheading, which 
might not sound like much, but uh, I suppose if we were facing one or the other, we would make a pretty quick choice as to which way we would rather die. Beheading was a much swifter and uh, more merciful form of capital punishment than burning, which was, uh, as you can imagine, uh, excruciating. But uh, Calvin was not able to um, persuade the state, which had the last word in this, uh, and Servetus uh, went uh, to the stake and uh, died uh, there by fire. I think with the view that Calvin, everybody else, almost everybody else held that uh, heresy was a civil crime, we have to see it in 16th century context as not only just getting an idea wrong about doctrine, but uh, because of union of church and state and the fact that each state had one church, whether it was Reformed, Lutheran, or Catholic, that heresy was tantamount to rebellion. Something like uh, rebellion or treason would be today. Now, we can easily separate heresy from treason today, but in the 16th century it was not easy to do that. Heresy looked like treason, and treason often is linked with heresy. And so we get something of an idea as to why uh, the 16th century people on all sides, Catholic and various types of Protestants, um, insisted that um, heresy was a, was a crime. Calvin doesn't really identify church and state. The two are distinct. We've seen that in Book 4. We see it in Geneva. Church is the church. The state is the state. There's not a single government. There's a twofold government. There's not a kind of theocracy like in the Old Testament. There's both church and there is state. And we can see his uh, struggle to keep the two separate when he insists that the church has the right of uh, church discipline. The state cannot uh, interfere with that. But uh, with his uh, concern to distinguish the two, he doesn't want to separate the two. He doesn't want to secularize the state. The state is still a Christian state and has responsibilities toward the church. Now, perhaps uh, a little chart might help us see this. Uh, Calvin does make a distinction between church and state. Church has its role. <coughs> Doctrine, worship, discipline. Three marks of the church later, but uh, for Calvin, the two marks of the church, the pure preaching of the word, sacraments rightly administered, and then discipline being closely connected, although not the third mark. And the state has uh, its role. The church cannot uh, dictate to the state what laws to pass and exactly how to manage uh, its affairs. But um, with the word uh, distinction, we also need the word cooperation. 
because uh, there's not a separation. Church and state are, you might say, in the in the same business to work together to promote life on earth and to promote true piety and the true religion. It seems to me it works out in Geneva something like uh, this. Where you have the line of of distinction, but uh, the church is certainly moving over into the territory of the state when it urges the passing of certain laws and the enforcement of those laws. And uh, the state moves over into the territory of the church when it uh, interferes with doctrine, worship, and discipline, as it did in Geneva. So the the line here is not a, a clear, firm separation of church and state line. There is distinction, but uh, a kind of um, second line here and here. And these lines could vary depending on exactly what is going on. Calvin would want to push this one back much more to that center line and say this really belongs to the church only. But uh, there were plenty of people in Geneva that felt that the church should have greater control over the laws of the state, not just in suggesting those laws, but in uh, actually um, forming those laws and uh, enforcing them. Jay? Uh, specifically in worship, did this civil government try to change or... The uh, frequency of the Lord's Supper. Calvin preferred every week. Civil government said you can only do it once a month. And then later, only once every three months. So here's a place where the civil government was uh, dictating uh, to the church in an area of of worship. I don't know that in Geneva there was ever a um, time when the civil government tried to establish doctrine for the Genevan church, but the civil government often got involved in doctrinal issues. Uh, for instance, the matter of uh, Servetus. He was tried and condemned by the civil government on the charge of anti-Trinitarianism. So the civil government had uh, interest in that and um, became involved in that. But... Um, as far as I know, never really tried to dictate to Calvin or the ministers how to settle an issue of, of doctrine. Okay, let's look at uh, types of government. Calvin says there are different ways in which states can be governed. And uh, basically his thought here is... However, you are being governed, accept that and don't be too concerned about it. We must accept the form of government the Lord has appointed for us and not attempt to change it. In fact, he thinks it's an idle pastime for private citizens to debate the pros and cons of various types of government. You can imagine how Calvin would feel if he was alive today and could read the newspaper. 
and uh, see all the letters and all the editorials and all the debate that goes on about how we run our country and what's wrong with it. And it would uh, be astounding uh, to him, I think. Not saying that we should not have that debate, uh, but just uh, stating that uh, for Calvin in his time, uh, he was um, concerned that people accept what God had placed over them in his providence. But even though he says, don't talk about it, don't debate it, uh, don't uh, get so upset about it, uh, he does offer some suggestions as to uh, various types of government. And Calvin clearly, I think, uh, prefers a government in which citizens share some responsibility. He has a growing revulsion toward the kingship itself, according to McNeil, which we can see in his persistent and often sweeping denunciation of kings. Going all the way back to his letter to Francis I in 1535, very respectful of Francis. He is the king. He doesn't want to create any rebellion. In fact, he is so concerned in that 1535 letter to say we're not Anabaptists. We're not trying to change the government. We're not trying to overthrow anything. We are good citizens and um, respectful of your majesty. But uh, Calvin doesn't um, hesitate to subject the king to biblical criticism or to say that the king stands under the Bible and uh, is not free to do anything that uh, he chooses. So, even though Calvin doesn't reject kingship and doesn't hesitate to say the king stands under the Bible, but Calvin doesn't try to uh, change uh, any kind of rule like that. You know, later when John Knox is in Geneva and writes um, his first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women to try to create some sort of unrest in England and in Scotland against the reign of the two Marys, Calvin is very disturbed about that. He says, this is not legitimate. We cannot uh, overthrow properly constituted governments even if those governments are Catholic and even if they're ruled by women. So he doesn't accept Knox's uh, view at all. But uh, clearly, too, I think Calvin uh, prefers what he calls aristocracy or aristocracy tempered by democracy. That's... 420 section 8. So, some kind of representation, not pure democracy. Uh, for Calvin, that would be um, tantamount to anarchy. Everybody having equal vote and being able to vote on everything. There are not really many pure democracies um, in the world, if, if there are any, since the days of the Greek city-states. So Calvin 
thinks that some kind of uh, representative government, aristocracy, or aristocracy tempered by democracy, I expect what he means by that is a kind of um, elite ruling class, and the people have some say in some things. But uh, by elite, he doesn't mean um, a kind of born elite. It's not... uh, not an aristocracy that uh, is um, by class. I think what Calvin has in mind here is an aristocracy not by privilege but by talent. The best qualified people should govern and uh, the people can have some say in it. Something like uh, what actually did transpire in Geneva Geneva had three councils, the Little Council, Council of 60, Council of 200. And the government was a rather complex uh, interrelation between these three councils. And the people had some voice, but um, it's not like um, a democracy. During the history of Rome, did it ever border on anything close to this with the Senate? Well, I think it did, yes. Certainly in the Republic, it did. Um, Before the Empire, after the Empire, there's not much, if anything. Well, perhaps some influence of the aristocracy, but certainly in the days of the Republic, it uh, was very close to uh, what Calvin is describing here. Calvin's uh, view, I think, here that we should have government shared and not concentrated in one person, although he doesn't, as I said, he doesn't really try to oppose kingship or overthrow it, but it's not his preference. It's to uh, have an aristocracy of of excellence, according to McNeil's uh, footnote. Another reason for that is... uh, point that I made earlier, and that is a kind of safety in numbers because of men's fault or failing. That's 420, section 8, so that they may help one another, teach and admonish one another. Because we're imperfect, because we're sinners, then it's good to have more people involved in government. Suppose you could say it's better to be governed by a lot of sinners than just one sinner, because that helps to balance uh, things. I was uh, struck uh, recently in reading an article in Books and Culture. I was quoting from Samuel Ling's uh, book called uh, Reflections on the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., Dr. Ling has taught here uh, some at Covenant, PCA minister, lives in Los Angeles and an expert on China. He is Chinese and a very good friend and a very fine man. And this review of some other books, not really Dr. Ling's book, uh, does um, mention his book in this context, ironically, 
Some modern Chinese thinkers have come to the conclusion that what Chinese culture requires from the Christian spirit is the teaching of original sin. Kind of struck me as being most unusual. Chinese thinkers saying, what we need is the doctrine of original sin. <laughs> and it uh, goes on to say this, uh, Yuan Ximin, a philosopher active in China's democracy movement, has argued that the Christian emphasis on sin provides, quote, the ultimate philosophical base for the establishment of social covenants, checks, and balances of power and the rule of law. Denial of man's sin and limitations is the spiritual root of tyranny, our awareness of such, the beginning of democracy. So, from a man, um, I don't know if he claimed to be a Christian at all, but a philosopher uh, says we need a doctrine of original sin in order to develop a, a government uh, that is uh, more uh, like a democracy and less like a tyranny. Well, it's exactly uh, what we have uh, in Calvin. So, if anybody wants a doctrine of original sin, we've got one, <laughs> and we'll be glad to share it. Uh, but it's interesting to see it come up in that context that it's a felt need. We need this because without this, we're not going to be able to develop a, a civil government uh, that uh, will uh, be helpful and not harmful uh, to us. Sometimes, uh, Calvin, I think this may be a, a bit of an overstatement, but uh, not entirely untrue. Sometimes Calvin has been called the virtual founder of America. And when people use that uh, expression, uh, I think um, they mean that uh, Calvin's uh, encouragement of representative government, which he does here, and uh, his doctrine of original sin, his doctrine of sin, which encourages a system of checks and balances, uh, which um, we have in our government, uh, can be traced back to the teaching of Calvin. We talk a little about uh, the exercise of uh, force. We have civil government. Can civil government um, exercise force? Use of the sword, the power of the sword. And Calvin says, yes. It's exactly what civil government does without um, any authority to punish. Civil government would be weak and ineffective. But uh, Calvin says the magistrate or civil government must avoid both excessive severity. There should be, can be punishments, but not excessive punishments. And the way Calvin expresses this is interesting, not only excessive severity, but also cruelest gentleness. The civil government doesn't do anything that's really cruel. So government walks a line between excessive severity and 
uh, cruel gentleness or weakness. What about uh, the right uh, then to wage war? Government can um, use the sword. Can it um, use the sword not only to enforce its laws, but uh, to go to war? And uh, Calvin, again, as the Christian tradition all the way back to Augustine and even earlier, affirms, answers by saying yes. For 2011... This is probably the, the chief summary sentence there. That wars are lawful to preserve the tranquility of the state's dominion, to restrain the seditious stirrings of restless men, to help those forcibly oppressed, and to punish evil deeds. I think um, trying to apply that to the recent war in Iraq, um, at least several of Calvin's statements there would um, fit to help those forcibly oppressed and to punish evil deeds certainly seem to fit the purpose of that uh, war. Calvin says... War, then, is, is right and just if it serves those purposes, but it must, be, it must be governed by extreme necessity for 2012. It's the last resort. And I suppose there the war in Iraq will still be debated, as it is, depending on whether the U.S. finds weapons of mass destruction or not crucial issue, I think, because that was one of the stated purposes in going uh, to war. So, war can be just and it can be right, but there has to be extreme necessity, and there cannot be anger or hatred. Calvin seems almost idealistic here. You can fight somebody, but you can't be angry with them and certainly can't hate them. And there must not be implacable severity. So there are a lot of qualifications. Yes, war is right if it's for these reasons, but um, it must be extreme necessity, must be fought without anger and hatred, and... uh, There must be limitations. There cannot be uh, extreme or implacable uh, severity. Government also, Calvin says, has a right uh, to tax the people. Calvin is um, rather sensitive about this. When he writes, he says that is almost the very blood of the people. When you're taxing people, taking some of their money, it's like taking their blood. So he doesn't, uh, Calvin doesn't view this as um, just a kind of minor thing. But he says governments do have the right to tax, but only for a legitimate cause. 
if it's not for legitimate cause, it is what he calls tyrannical extortion. Taxes that are raised for illegitimate reasons are viewed as tyrannical extortion for 2013. But um, proper taxes, yes. And Calvin says that is for the public expenses of the magistrate's office, or we might say running the country. And he also, Calvin also admits that this money can be used for the proper magnificence of their household. That is, the, the magistrates um, can live well. They can have a, not only a decent house, but a very nice house. And uh, it's not wrong to raise tax uh, for that as long as it's proper and not uh, too extravagant. And certainly, it's not to be squandered. talk a little bit about uh, the laws that should govern a state, and uh, we did this earlier when we were talking about Calvin's uh, view of law, but uh, repeat it again here because it comes up again here. The state should be governed by the common laws of nations. In other words, each state has the right to make its own laws generally um, observing what other states do, both in the past and in the present. And uh, these laws must be in conformity to that perpetual rule of love for 2015. So you check laws by the rule of, of love. But uh, we need not recreate the political system of Moses for 2014 don't have to go back to the uh, judicial law of the Old Testament and try to uh, put that in place. It's not what happened in Geneva. That uh, mosaic law can be used as a model or a guide. And certainly the principles of love and equity that were present in those laws of Moses should be present in modern laws, but laws, Calvin said, indeed vary in form, but have the same purpose or the same goal, which is equity, justice, and mercy, and love. If that's the goal of the law, it doesn't matter what form the law takes. It's interesting uh, that uh, Calvin also deals with the matter of lawsuits. Is it, um, is it proper for uh, people to sue each other? And uh, Calvin says, yes, permissible if rightly used for 2017. This is how he explains it. This, he says, is a set principle for all Christians. Don't know that I checked. Uh, oh, yes, I did. First Corinthians 6. I'll comment on that in a moment because um, that seems to be a problem to Calvin's view here. But here's his set principle for all Christians that a lawsuit, however just, 
can never be rightly prosecuted by any man unless he treat his adversary with the same love and goodwill as if the business under controversy were already settled and composed. So, you can do it, but the attitude and the spirit in it all is to treat the person as though it never happened or wasn't happening or had already been settled. So, that speaks to the inner spirit without anger, without desire to avenge or to hurt. Calvin admits that an example of an upright litigant is rare. I don't usually find this. Calvin is trained in law. He's a lawyer, so he's kind of in his own territory here. And he knows that when people go to law, they don't really um, love each other very much even though they should be loving each other. But um, it's rare, Calvin says. Well, the First Corinthians 6 passage where Paul um, seems to say, don't go to law. Calvin's comment is, Paul inveighs against that mad lust to go to law, not simply against all controversies. Whether Calvin is right about that or not, um, something we could probably debate. But um, he's saying Paul doesn't say never go to law, but don't have just a kind of a desire to always be suing somebody or going to law at the drop of a hat. What uh, it is Calvin's comment is four twenty twenty one, and the passage in Paul is 1 Corinthians 6, 5-8. Calvin says, to sum it up, love will give every man the best uh, counsel. Okay, relation between church and state. I've really already done that with this chart. Distinction, not separation. So we can um, move on. Distinction cooperation, because I want to spend the last few minutes on uh, civil uh, disobedience. Is it ever right for people to rise up in opposition to civil government? And uh, Calvin goes through the scriptural passages that command obedience to rulers Scripture particularly commands us to honor the king. The magistrate cannot be resisted without God being resisted. We are bound to obey wicked rulers. In fact, he says, reverence and esteem wicked rulers. But then he adds in 4.20.24, as far as is possible. There seems to be some... Slight limitation there. Yes, obey the king. After all, Paul is writing about a wicked Roman emperor when he says that. How can we do that? Or what is the spirit in which we do that? We're bound to reverence and esteem all rulers. Uh, Calvin says one thing it does is teach us patience. We are to consider our own sin. 
unjust rulers have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people. Maybe the reason that we have a wicked ruler is because of our sin. We should be patient and repentant and seek God and implore the help of God. It is not for us to remedy such evils. Only this remains to implore the Lord's help. So be patient and pray a lot. You know, when Huguenots, when the Reformed were being uh, martyred regularly in France, and wanted to begin to raise an army and defend themselves, Calvin counseled against it. He said, no, you can, um, should not do that. But uh, you, can, you can pray and you can die. Those were his instructions to those uh, Huguenots. Uh, later, the Huguenots uh, decided not to follow Calvin much longer in this because they were praying and they were dying. So um, resistance movements began to develop um, toward the end of Calvin's life, but he never really countenanced that. Calvin wrote to Coligny, the French um, Huguenot leader, in 1561, it would be better should we all perish a hundred times than expose the gospel to such a disgrace. Take up arms in the name of Christ. Be better to die, Calvin said. But when Calvin seems to have totally closed the door, there's a little crack that uh, he leaves open. And some others will kind of push that crack further and actually throw the door wide open eventually. But uh, Calvin's uh, crack is this. He talks about the role of the open avengers in 4.20.30. There's a wicked government, a bad government, an unjust government. And God may choose to raise up open avengers. People, quote, armed from heaven or directed by God's hand to punish wicked rulers. God raises up these open avengers, um, such as uh, Moses, uh, who delivered Israel from Pharaoh, and uh, such as the Assyrians to overthrow and punish the Jews. Open avengers. But you never really get in Calvin, in this concept, a program for revolution. Calvin doesn't say, God sometimes raises up open avengers, so you all should become open avengers. That's more what uh, John Knox wanted to do. But um, the open avengers acknowledge this idea in Calvin, acknowledges that God is in the overthrow of governments. Sometimes God does overthrow governments. But um, it's not uh, our marching orders. No command is given to us except to obey and suffer. It's 4.20.31. So you might say that doesn't really tell anybody what to do who's living in an unjust government. 
but it does serve the function of warning an evil ruler. Calvin says, let the princes hear and be afraid. 4.20.31 God does sometimes raise up open avengers to overthrow unjust governments. He doesn't apply that to people that they become involved in some kind of rebellion, but he does apply it to the rulers that they be afraid and perhaps then change their ways. So that's not much of a crack there in the door, but uh, the bigger crack comes when he talks about the role of the magistrates of the people. The people can't overthrow an unjust government, but the magistrates of the people have a certain right and even responsibility here. The magistrates whose constitutional function is the protection of the people against the misuse of the king. And Calvin goes back through history and shows how at different times in history with the Spartan ephors, the Roman tribunes, the Greek demarks, the German town gill masters, there have been these properly constituted lesser magistrates or magistrates of the people. The different governments have had this category of the king or the emperor or the ruler, and then you have the magistrates of the people. And um, they, they have the right to attempt to influence and change the government if necessary. Calvin says, if there are now any magistrates of the people, 42031, he's not sure that this category still exists, but uh, he does point out that um, modern nations have something similar, at least on the books, in the three estates, the three estates in France, for instance. But uh, the three estates in France had not met for 30 years when Calvin wrote this and still had not met in 1559. So even though technically there was a kind of category there, it was not functioning, much like uh, the parliament in England, which would only meet when the king decided he wanted the parliament to meet in order to raise taxes. But uh, Calvin uh, does say that properly constituted officials may oppose the king or the ruler. And McNeil comments that this is more influential in that it came as a concession at the end of a discussion that is anxiously conservative. Calvin doesn't want to do anything to encourage anarchy. To him, that's the worst of all worlds. So he's very cautious in trying not to uh, foment rebellion. Very upset with John Knox when he writes uh, First Blast of the Trumpet. 
And even his uh, section on the lesser magistrates is not an incitement for people to revolt, but an appeal to the magistracy to fulfill its legitimate uh, function. Well, that's about the end of the Institutes. Let me just, uh, as I close, um, read the the very uh, end. But since this edict has been proclaimed by the heavenly herald, Peter, said we must obey God rather than men, let us comfort ourselves with the thought that we are rendering that obedience which the Lord requires when we suffer anything rather than turn aside from piety. It's almost that Calvin ends where he starts. You know, almost the first sentence is piety. Book 1, chapter 1, section 1. The goal is love for God, piety, devotion. And now he says it's better to suffer anything than to lose that. And that our courage may not grow faint, Paul pricks us with another goad that we have been redeemed by Christ at so great a price as our redemption cost him so that we should not enslave ourselves to the wicked desires of men much less be subject to their impiety. So he seems to say there again thinking of this chapter piety is our goal and nothing should uh, deflect us from that. But we're not enslaved to the wicked desires of men. But it's hard to know what Calvin means by that. Does he mean the, the wicked ruler? Or does he mean wicked people in general? But uh, whatever he means, he's concerned here at the end to come back to the beginning. And that is to underscore the importance of our piety, and that's not yet the last word, you know, because Calvin wrote uh, the last word in very large letters, which are translated into English and placed in very large letters uh, in our version, God be praised. Uh, that uh, really is the last word. Well, enjoyed going through all of this with you, and uh, hope you'll have occasion in the future to bring out your institutes and look at them again. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Sensing a call from God to serve in ministry? Visit covenantseminary.edu. Check out our degree programs and the many other distinctives that make Covenant Seminary a place committed to equipping you for a lifetime of ministry. That's covenantseminary.edu.